0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. John has been introducing us to Jesus. He's been introducing us to Jesus mostly by introducing to people who don't get Jesus, even the people the closest to Jesus, until finally we see him revealing himself through His resurrection. And so for the last several chapters, the story, like all the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, slows down and zooms in on the very last week and even last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth. In John chapter 20, the foundation of the Christian faith takes place, and John, an apostle, a best friend of Jesus, and one of the eyewitnesses tells us how He resurrected on the third day, making what was the worst possible Friday into what we now call as Christians, Good Friday. And so, what we come to in chapter 21 is the epilogue. If you remember, the first chapter of the Gospel of John is the prologue, an introduction, a theological manifesto, if you will, of like, in the beginning, God was doing something. Jesus isn't a plan B, but God was doing something, and Jesus was divine and present with God in some miraculous triune fashion. Jesus wasn't created by God, but He was a part of creating all things. He was the Word, the very utterance of God's grace and mercy, declared and incarnate among us. But now we come to the epilogue. That is the, the closing chapter where John begins to kind of wrap up all of, all of this story. He begins to tie up the loose ends, if you will. And Jesus meets his people in a powerful way. So I'm going to read to you from the end of chapter 20, beginning in verse 30, all the way through the first 14 verses of chapter 21. We'll spend our time there. After John has told us about this encounter that Jesus has come to invest in his disciples as a risen Savior, verse 30, John summarizes the purpose of the entire book. Verse 30 of John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered Him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, Peter, and took the bread, excuse me, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. That word that begins this passage in verse 1, revealed, and closes this section in verse 14, revealed, tells us a little bit of something of what John wants us to know about Jesus. As John is tying up some important loose ends, he's answering some questions in chapter 21 that seem to still be hanging. You see, at the end of chapter 20, we're we're met with Jesus encountering and revealing himself to his disciples, but we're still kind of left wondering, okay, now that Jesus is alive, what next? He tells them in chapter 20 that now they're to join him on his mission. So in the same way that God has sent me, God the Father has sent me to you, so now I am sending you out to the world. The other gospel writers in the book of Acts concur with this. But they're kind of left with a question, so what now? Especially for Peter, the apostle who had betrayed so publicly Jesus, who had denied him so publicly. What of these disciples? What now? And so one of the loose ends that's tied up here is, okay, what is is Jesus' relationship with his disciples going to look like after the resurrection? And in the first 14 verses, he answers. And he gives us a clear picture of what it looks like to live as disciples. And I would argue he invites you and I to consider the possibility of what it might look like for us to follow, to trust in Jesus. Now remember, the purpose of the book we read the goal is to introduce us to Jesus and that we would believe in Jesus. We would exercise faith in Jesus. And, and through faith in Jesus, letting go of things we had otherwise trusted in, turning from them to trust in Jesus, we would actually experience the good life, the real life, eternal life in Jesus' name. But what does that life look like in following Jesus? Well, once again, John gives us a picture. And the picture he paints of what it looks like to follow Jesus begins with possibly a picture of what it looks like to not follow Jesus. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. And then there's a list of the same disciples that we would have seen in the first few chapters. The first disciples Jesus called to follow him. So here they are again. In verse 3, Simon Peter says something, I'm going to go fishing, I'm going to go fishing. So the question remains for us then, why are they fishing? Now scholars have a lot of different answers, but, but what we see in all the other Gospels is that immediately they're sent out and they're told to go and to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit that happens in Acts chapter 2, and then they disperse to share the gospel in Jerusalem, and persecution scatters them to the ends of the earth, such that the great commission that's given to them to make disciples of the nations, teaching them to obey all Jesus had taught them, begins to be fulfilled. But the first thing these guys did after encountering Jesus, resurrected and all, is to go fishing. And there's a few options as to why. And they're important to consider because they help us understand why this chapter is even important and how we're supposed to answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, here's some of the options. The first option is that they've gone to Galilee and it's actually out of obedience to the Lord's command. We see in Mark chapter 14 and chapter 16, Jesus says, look, go to Galilee and I'll meet you there. And so maybe they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16, we find out something else. He tells them, go, and and then in verse 16 it says, and so they went to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And so we're already left with something interesting. If they were told to wait for Jesus to receive the Holy Spirit in Galilee, and they were told to wait at this mountain, maybe even the mountain that the the famous Sermon on the Mountain was spoken, maybe even the mountain that Jesus was assumed up into heaven. We don't know how... We don't know the exact location, but for whatever, for whatever reason we see here, where were they? Not on a mountain. So at the very least, maybe they went to Galilee out of obedience, but there was something else missing. They weren't waiting patiently for the Lord to return to them on this mountain, according to Matthew twenty eight sixteen. So one of the options of why they're going fishing is that they just were simply commanded to go and wait for Jesus. And maybe they're doing that obediently, but they're still missing out, at least on a part of that. One of the second reasons may be, like for some of you, for recreation. Maybe it was a hobby. Let's go fishing. Maybe they really enjoyed it. Maybe it was just like, hey, let's, we got some time to kill. Let's do something recreative. One of the other options is that maybe it was just survival, right? you got to eat. Maybe they didn't have food. Maybe they said, let's, let's go fishing, and we'll begin to provide for one another and for this movement that's about to start, maybe that's what they were doing. But one other option is that maybe they were going back to make a living. Maybe they were returning back to their old lives. And even though the first thing Matthew tells us that Jesus charges his disciples with when he first calls them is what? Come, drop your nets, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's important because Matthew tells us that's literally the ABCs of following Jesus. We, we often think that sharing the gospel and inviting others to follow Jesus with us to make other disciples, we often fit into this kind of category of thinking that, that like doing that is varsity-level Christianity. Right? Like Only the real hardcore Christians... Maybe, maybe even only the professional Christians that are up on front of the stage every single Sunday. Maybe they're the ones who are supposed to invite other people to follow Jesus, make disciples of the nations. But what does Matthew tell us? No, it's the ABCs. And we know this. Anything valuable, anything important is worth sharing. If it's worth anything, it's then, then it's, it's, it, you're unable to keep it a secret. Look, some of you grandparents in this room already know this. No one has to ask you to show the pictures of your grandchildren. Because if it's really valuable to you, you don't wait for an invitation. Good news is good because it can't be kept a secret. It travels fast because you can't keep it under wraps. And so it's possible that these guys, instead of remembering the ABCs of their calling, which is to love and follow Jesus in such a way that is multiplicative, that is Ultimately, contagious and spreads. Maybe they've gone back to making a living, because the last option, and maybe they've just gone back to their old life. Maybe they've just gone back and they've given up on following Jesus altogether. You see, we don't really know. We don't know why they aren't doing or not where they were supposed to be, according to Matthew twenty-eight sixteen. You don't really know why they're fishing. But here's what we do know. It was odd enough that John wanted to make sure we heard this story. And here's what I will encourage you. Whatever they were doing, whatever they were doing, Jesus shows them that they are completely able to do nothing apart from Him. And remember what a good ending of a book will do. It will tie up a lot of loose ends, right? And so I want to encourage you, if you go all the way back to John chapter 15, and this amazing farewell discourse. He's teaching his disciples, look, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes in order that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Listen to these words from John chapter 15. For I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And so had these apostles gone back to their own life, their old life going back to their old way, had they given up on following Jesus and making disciples of the nations and being fishers of men? We don't know. But this is a powerful reminder, a, ta- a powerful loose end tied up that they could do nothing apart from Jesus. You can hear the disciples, we need nothing. Surely we could catch fish. Without Jesus. Sure, surely we could catch some fish to feed some people. Surely, surely that isn't what, surely Jesus didn't mean you can do nothing. Surely there's at least some realm of, of the world or some category of creation where I have some significance, I have some control, some sovereignty, some power. I mean, we're pros after all. And notice, even in a place where they were highly trained, highly capable, highly skilled, One of the loose ends that Jesus begins to help, or excuse me, John begins to help us tie up is that we can do nothing apart from Him. Not even the thing that you think you're really good at. So notice, whatever they were doing, Jesus shows them that they are able to do nothing apart from Him. Nothing. Not a single thing. Because whatever their purpose for being there, it seems, pretty, it seems pretty impossible to imagine that they'd be fishing or any of this would be taking place after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit comes and miraculously begins to scatter the gospel through different languages miraculously. Like, like it's hard to imagine they'd be like, this amazing thing that happened and, and sending us to the nations, it's amazing. What do you guys want to do? Let's get some fish. It's hard to imagine them doing this after the Holy Spirit has come upon them and empowered them to the mission that they're called to fulfill. It's impossible to imagine that. But instead we see this illustration that apart from Christ they can do nothing. Not only their mission to make disciples, but they can't even fish. So in verse 5, did you catch that? That whole night they did what? They caught nothing. 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 I want you to see some, something especially interesting here that, that's unique to Jesus. Jesus will expose our inability. He is not shy about it. you got to, I've got to show you some, I've got to be a Greek nerd for just a minute here, but when he says in verse, verse 4, you see this like Jesus saying to them or, or Jesus coming to the shore and they didn't know it was Jesus. This is common up for the last chapter, right? Mary didn't recognize him. The other disciples didn't know how he got into, inside to the house that they were hiding in for fear of the for fear of persecution. Verse 5 says, "Children, do you have any fish?" Now, now just you got to see something. This word children isn't like previously when he says, "my little children," right? Like endearing and in, in a loving fashion. This is more like literally boys, guys. It's a generic it's not a, it's, it's not a, it's not a it's not necessarily a formal or or kindred word. It's more just like a generic guy bros, dudes, guys. And so he's like, hey guys. And, then, and there's something you don't see here. There's actually a negative in here. The, the first of that phrase is the negative may, and, and that is to say that he asks the question implying already the negative. And so it's ready, it's probably better to say, hey guys, don't you have any fish? Now maybe you don't understand that. You add a not into that, you add a don't or haven't, it changes the meaning. Maybe, I don't know if you experience this, but in my marriage and in my house, it's like this. There's, there's one way to ask, are you wearing that tonight? Right? <laughs> right, that's... But here it, it gets really crazy if you say it this way. You're not wearing that, are you? Right? You would agree. Add that word. It's a completely different meaning. It implies something, right? Haven't you done this? Don't you think you ought to? Have you, anyone used it? Like, like this is this is Mother's Day. I hope you hear your mom. I know how they like. Aren't we? Don't you think we should? Yes, indeed. That's exactly what I was thinking. I <laughs> I don't know how your mom relates to you. Don't you think? Wouldn't it be better? Yes, it would. You're right. Thank you. But that's what Jesus does here. He's not just asking a question. He's in some ways poking. Jesus actually draws attention to their inability. He's not even shy about it. Hey boys! Haven't you caught any fish? It's almost like a taunt. And they answered him, and there's no tone there, but they're like, no. (laughs) Don't miss that. The, The beginning of this story is just the way that God works. And as John is tying up loose ends to help us answer the question, something like, what will it be like to follow Jesus? What will it be like to call ourselves Christian? One of the first things that Jesus does, and He's done this all along the way, but even the resurrected Jesus calls His disciples to follow Him by first showing them their own weaknesses and inabilities. He first says, look, have you noticed your failure? Your failure? Have you noticed this isn't working out? As if to kind of come along and say, hey, how's that working out for you? How's that actually playing out for you? And Jesus exposed their inability. He's not even shy about it. Now, now I want to stop for just a minute and offer an encouragement, right? Hang with me. For some of you, you need to hear the rest of all the way to John chapter, or all the way to verse 14. Because some of you are stuck there. When I say that Jesus exposes your inabilities, for for many of you, you are wallowing in your own self-pity. Woe is me. And so hang with me. Don't give up on the story. It doesn't end there. But don't miss it. It must begin there. We saw this last week. You can't have both faith or trust and control. You can't. And when Thomas says, I'll believe as long as, and puts terms on his faith, what he's really saying is, I'm sovereign. I'm capable. I can do this. It just The world needs to be subject to my sovereign terms. And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, how's, how's, how's that working out for you? And Jesus exposes his inability, draws attention to it. Verse 7. After they follow his advice, we don't know why, maybe it was just they were desperate. This, this smacks of Luke chapter 5, and I encourage you to read Luke chapter 5 this week, where, where a similar encounter takes place, but the response is very different. He says, cast the net on the other side in verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, again, by the end of this chapter, we're meant to go like, oh, that's John. It's the guy, it's the guy who wrote the book. He also identifies himself as really fast. It's important because he says something cool about Peter here as well. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And again, you get to see the character and nature of some of Jesus' followers. The beloved disciple immediately has insight. Immediately has insight. And Peter immediately has what? Action. So it says he put his coat on and jumped out into the water. Put on his outer garment. And you'll say, why was he not wearing his outer garment? And it seems like, as any good fisherman, any man who's been on a boat, sun's out, guns out. (laughs) Problem being, and this is, you know this guy, it was dark. (laughs) You know that guy. You'll hear more. He comes out later. Remember, this is just, I want you to see, this is, this is John, and this, is, this Help us trust the eyewitness accounts of the gospel. They, they let us into real people that real people would have known and would have been able to say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. I met that guy. He's in Ephesus. I didn't know what that guy's like. And so Peter, quick to action, throws on his coat as if to kind of say, like, it probably wouldn't be right to, to, to run up to Jesus. I'm going to get dressed up and throws himself into the sea. What a great way to say it. He throws himself into the sea. And as he makes his way all the way to the shore, they encounter Jesus. Now, notice, John tells them the rest of the people stayed on the boat, as if to say, again, that's Peter, right? You know that guy. Like, woo! Like, hey, guys, we, ha- we still have work. We have work to do. As if he's like, we caught the fish. That's good. I'm out of here. You guys clean it up. Kind of important. It's Mother's Day. Don't make your mom do the dishes, okay? That's all I'm, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Don't be that guy. Because John says, like, when they got on land later, he, they were as if they had been left, what did they find Jesus doing? He had a fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And he says, bring some of the fish you caught. Apparently he had already cooked some of them and, and then he gave them the rest. So here's what I meant by sun's out, guns out. So verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and did what? He hauled the net ashore. So remember remember when John was drawing close attention to how fast he was? That's as if he pulls back and goes, to be fair, Peter's wicked strong. He's slow, he's slow, but he is strong. Which is why he's always trying to take his shirt off. I, mean, I want you to love John. Don't you know these people? Haven't you met these people? Often we look at the apostles and we're like, man, they're just super saints. Like, no, these are, to use Jesus' words, boys, haven't you caught any fish? And so notice something amazing. They're failing at what they're doing, completely failing. And yet, what does the resurrected Jesus do? He serves them. He serves them. Don't miss this. This is a fulfillment, not only of him washing their feet. But of the great declaration, the gospel of Mark tells us that the Son of Man, Jesus tells us, did not come to be served, but to serve. To lay his life down as a ransom for many. And i hang on that for just a moment. Don't miss the point that Mark has been telling us and that Jesus has told us a few chapters before when he washes their feet and he says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, I know it seems strange, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And I want to invite you to consider a question. Will you let Jesus serve you today? Will you let Him do the thing that you cannot do for yourself? Or will you tell Jesus, I got this? Don't miss this. In in American Western Christianity, there's plenty of, do better so that God will love you. Do better, look a certain way, serve in such a capacity so that you will look a certain way and you will win approval. Don't miss, that's the most anti gospel thing on earth. It's a declaration that says, I'm good enough to win this on my own, but the gospel is, No, you aren't, and yet God's grace is sufficient to give to you that which you could never purchase on your own. Will you let Him serve you today? It's not an idle story. He's told us this multiple times. What does it look like to follow Jesus? In the most real and practical sense, it means you let him supply what's lacking. Now, for some of you who are guests in this room, I, I hope you'll hear me loud and clear in this way. I'll hammer down on this hopefully every week for those of you who gather with us every single week. But this is the part of the sermon where most people who would call themselves Christian are ready for the pastor to go tell them all the things they should do better this week. This is the point where you're waiting for me to go, like, you're like, okay, what do I do? What do I do then? What do I do? And I want to encourage you. This is not about you. Stop making this about you. I have good news. Jesus has done all that is necessary for your joy. Stop! Do nothing apart from Christ. Or, as you saw here, you will come face to face that you are unable to do anything apart from Christ. Will you let him serve you? I know some of you are high achievers. You're super self-sufficient. You dressed up this morning just so everyone would know how well you take care of yourself and everyone else. And I just get to encourage you, don't miss that that will rob you of joy in Jesus. Be like the disciples who, in some real and practical way, said, fine, I can't make myself clean. You have to wash me. I can't sustain myself. You have to feed me. You have to be the living water. You have to be the bread of life. You have to be the means of purification. You have to be the sacrifice obedient unto death for my sake. I can't do it. And I hope that for some of you in this room, maybe this is the first time you've ever felt the burden lifted off your shoulder. You don't have to do a thing. Jesus did everything important for you. All you have to do is receive the gift. What does a resurrected do? resurrected Christ do for his disciples? He serves them. He does for them what they could never do for themselves. Notice what Jesus does in the grand scheme of this passage. Jesus will allow our own fruitlessness to demonstrate his own power. For whatever reason that they were fishing, one of the first stories after the resurrection and after Jesus had revealed himself to his disciples twice, that word revealed literally like introduced or manifested himself Was to do what? Was to meet them in their failure. Not only to expose their inabilities, but to kind of rub their nose in it. And I just want you to see, Jesus will allow that. Jesus will allow fruitlessness in your life and mine, not to punish us or to make us miserable, but ultimately to show us how powerful He really is. In case you think this idle story of fish is insignificant, let me read to you out of Ezekiel chapter 47. Up to this point in, the, the prophet Ezekiel has shown us that the judgment in God's people for their disobedience was such that God, even in his presence, left the temple, left the temple. And so finally, a promise of restoration for God's people comes. In Ezekiel 47, there's going to be a temple reestablished. And out of the temple, Ezekiel gets a vision of a river flowing out of the temple. Now, those of you who've been walking through the Gospel of John, this should be like, oh, water, Jesus, I got it. Rock busted in the wilderness that... that that su- supplied water for everyone, that Jesus, Jesus. But in case you don't know that, like the temple is Jesus, the water coming out is Jesus. And, and listen to the way that Ezekiel s- describes this covenant promise that's going to be fulfilled by Jesus. Verse 9, and wherever the river, this river that's coming out of the temple, the presence of God is a river coming out of it. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish Right, We get pictures of Revelation 19, 20 and 21, where the new garden will be a city with a river running through the middle of it that supplies life for every single one, and that life is a living water. And everything will live wherever the river goes. In verse 10, fishermen will stand beside the sea, and from Engeti to Inglaim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of every or very many kinds even greater than the fish of the great sea. My bad. That was me, not you. Don't miss, this story of fish isn't an idle story. It's meant for us as we ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that we're stepping into God's promise, being fulfilled in such a way that life will be teeming. Life will come out. Life will come out. Flowing not only out of what Jesus has done, but out of what Jesus will begin to enable us to do. Just like the wine in chapter 2, just like the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is superabundance, Jesus is the source. And there's a symbolism, even just in the sheer quantity, as if to say, why were there 153? As if to say, like, there was a big, there was a bunch of fish, and someone was like, How many fish are there? They're huge. And they sat out and they maybe to to distribute them to one another, or maybe just to know how many there were, they counted them. But catch something that we see in verse 12 and 13. There's still a hesitation, there's still an uneasiness. There's still a, there's still some sort of reticence. Look at the way he says it. There's all these fish. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. But this weird thing John tells us as an eyewitness, none of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. But but think about why he's even saying that. They wouldn't dare, but they kind of wanted to. And we see this here and in the other Gospels as well. Jesus' resurrected and glorified body evidently is even difficult to recognize. Maybe because they saw Him crucified. They saw His his own body beaten beyond recognition as a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. But but whatever the case may be, there's something about them that they're like, is it Him? Is this real? But none of them dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, and he fed them. He supplied their need. Here's an encouragement I have to you. Jesus will always use failure to expose something in us for our good. For our good. They were uneasy. They were uncomfortable. And in their fruitlessness, Jesus allowed them to suffer. They allowed them to do this. And I would encourage you to consider this question. Where do you currently feel like you keep coming up empty? Where do you feel like you're not measuring up, like you're not achieving like you should? Because Jesus shows his disciples something. Our frustration always serves a purpose. It exposes something in us whether it's a righteous frustration that the things we long for God to bring about according to His promises haven't come yet, or if it's frustration because we have hoped in and trusted in things that will not bring life. Ask yourself, where do I keep coming up empty and why do I keep coming up empty there? And consider this. Consider what the disciples were failing at. Consider your frustration and theirs. Their frustration was regardless of their gifts or abilities, regardless of strengths or experience, so that they might realize that they are fruitless apart from, their, from the work of Jesus in their own lives. Don't miss this. The Christian life is not marked by achievement. It's marked by Dependence. Being a good Christian is not being a good achiever. It's trusting and depending upon the one who has achieved on our behalf. And any efforts in our own lives that we put forth in our own strength will be just as effective as these disciples fishing. And in your own efforts, the only thing you will excel at on your own will be selfishness. You'll excel at self-promotion. You'll excel at self-gratification, but here's the secret I'll tell you even from experience. You'll also excel in self-loathing. If you want to do anything of eternal value, your effort is not enough, and it never will be. Here's an encouragement. If you want to be any benefit to the people around you, your effort will never be enough. This is especially good news for some of you moms in the room. If you ever want to be a good mother, a mother that leads humbly and joyfully for your children to experience the grace of God in Christ, you will always fail to do that if it's in your own strength. And there's lots of good blogs and websites that will boost your own strength and make you depend on and brag on your own strength or look down on the people who don't do it like you. And I want to encourage you, most of those people are just trying to cover the fact that they feel hopeless that they've failed in their own strength. Moms, good news. You want to find contentment in your motherhood? Enjoy the fact that you'll be able to fail in your own strength, and Jesus will be a better parent than you will. If you want to be a godly friend or spouse, if you want to experience victory over sin, then your best efforts will always fall short. Because apart from the power of Jesus at work in and around and through your own life, every investment of yours will come up empty or be short-lived at best. Look, this fish story is discouraging at first, isn't it? And you know what that's like to experience failure. But because of Christ, we don't need to rely on our own strength. He's provided exactly what we've needed, exactly when we needed it. Look, there may be seasons in your life of failure and disappointment and frustration, and maybe you're living in one right now. But hear the good news: even though it may feel as though everything is going wrong, Jesus never wastes frustration. He uses that frustration to expose something we're hoping in or trusting in. Look, some of you career types, can you just like, don't you think it's it, it's it's interesting that these guys were professional fishermen? They were pros. They were pro, they had trained at this, and they were failing at it. Coincidence? Because in times of failure, the object of our trust is ultimately revealed. The area of failure for the disciples was the area they probably had the most confidence in, don't you think? They were vocational fishermen. If they could expect to be good at anything, fishing would be it. And yet, Jesus will use the area of our greatest confidence in order to teach us a lesson. Maybe to expose that that thing we're putting confidence in can't actually provide. But to trust Jesus, don't miss this, is ultimately to mistrust our own strength. To experience the greatness of God's grace and his sovereignty is to give up our own sovereignty. Because as you zoom out and look at the story, look what happens. These guys who thought, well, for sure we could at least go back to fishing well, right? We, I mean, we kind of failed Jesus in his hour of greatest need. We should have been there to die alongside him. We didn't do that, but at least we can go back and fish. And the beginning of this story, John's like, nope, not really. We can't even do that without Jesus. And you might be discouraged and say, I have my own list of failures, but look what this story illustrates about those of us who might follow Jesus. Jesus meets with the incapable and serves them out of His capabilities. I've come to find that the Gospel, the good news of Jesus' finished work, is most provocative for people who think they just need to kind of tweak some things in their life to enhance their joy and satisfaction. I found that the Gospel is the most offensive to the people who are like, I've kind of got this figured out, but I sure would like to mix in some Jesus with this so my life formulas will kind of be enhanced and my satisfaction will be increased. The Gospel makes those people the angriest because the Gospel says, your best efforts are filthy, rags they're disposable in fact the self-righteousness in your own heart is what will keep you from the gift of god in christ and so what seems like often to be incapacitating namely coming face to face with our weaknesses our incapabilities can feel like like an ultimate failure can feel like a death sentence but look what jesus does for people who admit and face their incapability He's the one he comes to and says, "Come, sit, sit down." And for some of you shift workers, right? You want breakfast? It's Not really breakfast. Been working all night. Been laboring. Oh, would you begin to let Jesus serve you? And in those places where you know you feel like you're failing, you feel like you are not measuring up. Would you just begin to let those things? fall at the foot of Jesus and see, what does he do? Does he crush them? No. He exposes them, (laughs) right? This is what I would say. Hey guys, haven't you found the good life yet? Nope. How about you try something else? How about you begin to admit your own weakness and let my strength be sufficient? How about you come to shore, pull up a seat, I'll make you a meal. I'll do for you what you could never do for yourself. Maybe before some of you, this is the first time you begin to realize that the thing that's keeping you, the thing that's keeping you from experiencing the grace of God in Christ is that you still think you can outfish your way into joy. You can out achieve your way into joy. And I want to encourage you, you're going to leave and you're going to go back to achieving and doing and all that good stuff. And I just want to encourage you, when when that fails, right? When that net comes up empty, Jesus will use that failure, I hope, to remind you of these words. And Jesus says, I got this. Don't be surprised. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me close on this broad illustration of the Bible. The entire Bible is a story of failure. People's failure one after the other. Now here's what's interesting. I can speak from my own experience and maybe I'll speak for yours as well, but I always learn better from failure than I do success. And most people learn better from failure than success. The lessons learned from doing something really foolish tend to just like really be ground into you, right? As opposed to you know, being successful. I don't want you to be surprised by that. That's literally the story of the Bible. Of one person's failure after another. Maybe if we get together and, and fail better. No, it's over. And it's like, it's one, story's, one story of failure after another. And here's what I would encourage you, what I see here with the resurrected Jesus. Some of you are a few failures away, just a few failures away, from experiencing a radical and transforming encounter of God's grace. Some of you have just a little bit of self-respect left, right? (laughs) And you're a few failures away from having it removed and experiencing God's grace. Some of you, you're going to go and you're going to achieve and you're just a few more stumbles away from utter despair. Would you remember Jesus' words? (laughs) Would you learn from the apostles' mistakes? Jesus came to serve and apart from him, All of our efforts will be fruitless. And yet because of him, we now experience abundance, miraculous, miraculous abundance because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you meet us in our doubts, you meet us in our failures, you meet us in our weakness. I thank you for these apostles. I thank you for even the way that I can relate to them. I thank you that even in my failure and even in my weakness, you have seen fit not to crush me or to, or to humiliate me, but I thank you that even in my own weakness and failure, you come in and are sufficient. I thank you for your kindness. So maybe for some of the people in this room right now, they are utterly and completely crushed by the weight of their own failure. They feel like they're a disappointment feel like they're unable to achieve. Would you begin to show them that those feelings of insecurity, those feelings of fear, those awarenesses of our own limits, those are not punishments, those are gifts. Those are invitations to begin to stop trusting in ourselves and to begin to trust in the one who is capable. If there's some in this room, maybe they're just crushed with despair and wallowing in self-pity and thinking, "I'll, I'll never be good enough. Would you come along and instead of saying, no, you will be good enough, would you come along and invite them to consider you're right? But Jesus is, He's good enough. For the rest of us, maybe we're just prone to put our efforts in our own achievement. We're prone to, like these apostles, at the very least, put our best efforts into things that are ultimately not that fruitful. Might we even learn from this lesson that apart from Jesus, there is no fruitfulness. But in the presence of Jesus, there is bounty. There is a blessing that it is hard to count. May we begin to experience an awareness of our own weakness and yet a profound, overwhelming awareness of your grace in spite of it. In Jesus' name, amen.